Hello and welcome to Nightlight. I find myself repeatedly being drawn to what is erroneously called the minor prophets. The minor prophets are only spoken of as minor because, unfortunately, their length uh, is so much shorter than the so-called major prophets of Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah. But that puts us in a wrong mindset regarding the minor prophets because we think of that as kind of like the minor leagues versus the major leagues. What boy would not want to avoid the minors if he can get in the majors? Well, the minor prophets are not minor. In fact, sometimes what they have to say is so amazingly apropos to our current situation that it would be very good for all of us to study them and become as familiar with them as we are with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because the, the voice of the prophet is railing against hypocrisy, flippancy, blasphemy, materialism, and the disregard for the poor and the needy. All subjects that directly relate to where we are now. All subjects that, if ignored, can bring a nation under the just wrath of God. I want to read to you an extensive introduction written by Abraham Heschel from his book on the prophets. This is long. I want you to hear it. What manner of man is the prophet? A student of philosophy who turns from the discourses of the great metaphysicians to the orations of the prophets may feel as if he were going from the realm of the sublime to an area of mere trivialities. Instead of dealing with timeless issues of being and becoming, of matter and form, of definition and demonstrations, he is thrown into orations about widows and orphans, about the corruption of judges and affairs of the marketplace, instead of showing us a way through the elegant mansions of the mind, the prophet takes us to the slums. The world is a proud place full of beauty, but the prophets are scandalized and rave as if the whole world is just a slum. They make much ado about paltry things, lavishing excessive language upon trifling subjects. So what if somewhere in the ancient Palestine uh, poor people have been mistreated and trodden down by the rich? So, so what if some old woman finds pleasure and edification in worshiping the queen of heaven? Why such immoderate excitement? Why such intense indignation? The things that horrified the prophets are even now daily occurrences all over the world. There's no society to which Amos' words would not apply from chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. Hear this, you who trample upon the needy. Bring the poor of the land to, to their desolation, saying, Where will the new moon be over so we can get back to selling? When will the Sabbath end so we can get back to stealing from people and, and selling them uh, bogus merchandise and so forth? 
Indeed, the sort of crimes and even the amount of delinquency that filled the prophets of Israel with dismay do not go beyond that which we regard as normal, as typical ingredients of social dynamics. To us, a single act of injustice, like cheating in business, exploitation of the poor, is slight. To the prophets, it's a disaster. To us, injustice is injurious to the welfare of the people. To the prophets, it's a death blow to existence. To us, it's an episode. To them, a catastrophe, a threat to the existence of the world. Their breathless impatience with injustice may strike us as hysteria. We ourselves witness continually acts of injustice, manifestations of hypocrisy, falsehood, outrage, misery, but we rarely grow indignant or overly excited about it. To the prophets, even a minor injustice assumes cosmic proportions. Again, Amos says, The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it? Be appalled, says Jeremiah. Be appalled, O heavens, at what they're doing. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can't even hold water. The prophets speak and act as if the sky were about to collapse because Israel has become unfaithful to God. Is not the vastness of their indignation and the vastness of God's anger in disproportion to its cause? How should one explain such moral and religious excitability, such extreme impetuosity? It seems incongruous and absurd that because of some minor act of injustice inflicted on the insignificant, powerless, poor, the glorious city of Jerusalem should be destroyed and the whole nation go into exile? Did not the prophet overdo it? The prophet's words are outbursts of violent emotions. His rebuke is the harsh and relentless word. But if such deep sensitivity to evil is to be called hysterical, what name shall we be giving to the abysmal indifference to evil which the prophet points out in all of us? Amos goes on to say, They drink wine in bowls. They anoint themselves with the finest of oils. But they are not grieved by the destruction of Joseph. The small-mindedness of our moral comprehension, the incapacity to sense the depth of misery caused by our own failures, is a fact which no subterfuge can elude. Our eyes are witness to the callousness and cruelty of man, but our heart tries to obliterate the memories, to calm the nerves, and to silence our conscience. The prophet is a man who feels fiercely. 
God has thrust a burden upon his soul, and he is bowed and stunned at man's fierce greed. Frightful is the agony of man. No human voice can convey its full terror. Prophecy is the voice that God has lent to this silent agony. A voice to the plundered poor, to the profaned riches of the world. It is a form of living, a crossing point of God and man. God is raging in the prophet's words. Or to put it in a more simple vernacular, the prophet is railing at things we think are paltry and insignificant because the prophet has the right point of view and we are blind fools. If the prophet is screaming that the house is on fire and we think it's just a puff of smoke, it's the prophet who is sane and we who are insane. And that brings me to where we are today in in uh, what I want to share with you in the time that we've got. I was asked this week to participate in a series on the Minor Prophets that's being presented by a local church here in town. And I was asked to speak on the book of, of Amos. And though I always have tons of material stacked up that I want to address in Nightlight, when I got into this study of Amos, I, I realized that there's so much here that we need to pay attention to that I wanted to share it with you in Nightlight. Let me give you a little bit of background in the prophet Amos, keeping in mind all that we just read from uh, Abraham Heschel, that the spirit of the prophet, whether it's Amos or Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, uh, Micah, Malachi, Jonah, all of these prophets are railing against what the world says is not a big deal. What I long for me and you to grasp in this overview of the book of Amos that we're about to take time to do here is to ask the question as you're listening, where in this study is my heart being revealed as having an attitude of indifference toward things that God is appalled at? What is it in my life that I have not just tolerated but tried to even sanctify. It's bad enough to tolerate things that you and I both know are pretty pretty wrong. That's bad. What's really worse is when that which we are tolerating has become not just a toleration, but something that we actually think there's nothing wrong with. And like the frog in the water that we always proverbially refer to, how much are we asleep at the wheel, about to go over the cliff, and thinking that we're walking in the Spirit? Now, I know this this very question can become introspective. And for those of you who come from hyper-legalistic backgrounds, who are battling every day of your life to escape that kind of uh, uh legalistic introspection, you're already saying, I don't need this, Clay. You're getting too close to the very thing that just nearly drove me nuts. But let me stop you there and just, just wait. 
Isaiah says in chapter 1, Come, the Lord speaking now, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. The Lord. I'm not asking you to dig around inside yourself on your own. That's fruitless. How can a hole dig itself? How can a garden weed itself? But I am asking us to ask the Holy Spirit to guide us in a Holy Spirit-directed introspection, where Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, search yourselves, examine yourselves to make sure you're in the faith. And so, you know, for me to sit here month after month, week after week, and talk to you and exhort you and tell you what I believe is on the heart and mind of God, especially in the face of the age that we're living and the the close of the age that we are moving toward. Do you know how easy it is for me to be intense and focused and uh, finished recording this message, turn off the equipment, walk out the door and flop in the middle of the floor and say, boy, I'm glad that's over with. Turn on the TV and give me a pizza and let's veg. Nothing wrong with vegging sometime. Nothing wrong with pizza. Nothing wrong with turning on the television. But you get my point. It's easy for the messenger to become deceived by thinking that because he's the messenger, he doesn't have to heed the message. I'm constantly mindful of that. Well, I say I'm constantly mindful of it. No, sometimes, that's my point, sometimes I'm not mindful of it. Sometimes I get tired of being mindful of it. And as the day approaches and as the pressures increase and as the the warning signals are showing up around the world and there is still in the face of it this this devil-may-care, false peace, False prophets who tell everybody there's nothing to be alarmed about. Don't pay any attention to the sound of that shofar blowing in the distance. Don't heed those overreactionary watchmen on the wall. Pay no attention to those people whose faces are red and the veins are sticking out in their neck and they're screaming, the sky is falling, the sky is not falling, it's all going to be okay. I want to tell you, I would rather be a raving maniac and end up being wrong, but know that I did my best to sound the alarm than to try to find some kind of false comfort in the face of a truly impending disaster. There are so many areas to talk about in so many aspects of life that it's overwhelming to even list them. And so I don't list them. I I always figure that People listening to Nightlight have enough sense to make their own lists, that you're awake enough to look out your own window, you're savvy enough to recognize the, um, the, the, the tremors that portend the earthquake, you're understanding enough to know how to read the signs of the times and the red sky in the morning that says there's going to be a storm before the day is over. I figure you know how to do that. But... I want us to go together now into the book of Amos and take a look at some principles that we all need to keep in mind regarding the responsibility of those of us who are awake, those of us who are watchmen on the walls, those of us who speak to others and care about others. Uh, You know, I told you a few uh, sessions ago 
that I believe as we approach the 20th anniversary of this ministry, that God had placed on my heart a specific calling for for myself and for those of you who listen to me, for whatever it's worth, that I might be a, a supporter for you as you begin to carry on or, or continue to carry on the ministry of intercession, that God is calling those of us who are related to nightlight, to whatever degree we're able to do it, to stand in the gap, to make up the hedge, to be watchmen and watchwomen on the walls, and to be in position to hear the Holy Spirit call us into intercessory prayer, to, to, to save and to protect and to uh, defend that which we love and that which is valuable to us and to God. Not that everything we think is valuable is valuable to God, but I do believe that what is valuable to us, if we're walking in the Spirit, is valuable to God. If we love what He loves and hate what He hates, then it's going to stand to reason that He also loves what we love and hate what we hate because we're in union with Him. He's the vine and we're the branches and we're living out of the same sustenance that flows through Him. And so I say with the soldier, I'm not so much hating what's in front of me, but I'm fighting because I love what's behind me. And so I'm standing on the wall, standing in intercession, pleading before God for his righteousness to be worked and for his kingdom to come and for evil to be overthrown and for God to turn all things for our good and his glory. That's the call of the intercessor. Well, so that's why I want us to look in the book of Amos together and draw some principles from it that will help us. Let me give you just a little bit of background about the prophet Amos. He was from a village called Tekoa, about 12 miles from Bethlehem in Judah. He was a southerner. Yet the Holy Spirit calls him away from his farming business. He's not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. He's not trained in ministry at all. In fact, that's maybe the reason why God called him and chose him. He had no spiritual vocation. He was he was a keeper of sycamore trees, made a living that way. But the Spirit of God came upon him and sent him north to the northern kingdom of Israel to speak to the people of Israel concerning the judgment of God that is coming on the earth One of the most important aspects of this is the fact that he begins his message to Israel not by addressing Israel, but by addressing Israel's enemies, which got the people's attention. Naturally, yeah, we want to hear about what's going to happen to those suckers. And so he talks to them about the wickedness of the surrounding nations. Understand that at the time Amos is speaking to the people of Israel, under Jeroboam II, they are enjoying the greatest prosperity since Solomon. And included in that prosperity is an affluence that has trickled down, so to speak, to much of the uh, population. But the population is 
divided by the very rich and the very poor. And the very poor are being trampled underfoot by the very rich, and the very rich are getting richer off the backs of the poor. Courts are full of graft and corruption and crooked judges. Um, Religion is a big show, full of pomp and circumstance, full of ritual, full of sacrifice and music and celebration, but there is absolutely no reality in it. There's no relationship with God in it. One of the things you see in all of the minor prophets, all of the prophets, major or minor, is this repetitive appeal, which is as, quote, New Testament as you can get. Uh, one of the tricks of the enemy is to make people think in terms of old versus new testaments to the point that the heart of God revealed in the prophets is completely missed. Let me give you just jump ahead and give you one example. Uh, God says, um, I, I, "I will not, I will not, pers- I will not respond to their appeal to the Passover." <clears throat> I'll explain more about that in a minute. But He's saying to Amos, "Listen, tell the people, I will no longer hear their their cries about the Passover." Pleading the blood, you might say. I won't listen to them when they plead that the blood is covering their sins. Because they erroneously think, as many New Testament believers erroneously think, that the shedding of blood has somehow so covered my sin that I can live in sin and appeal to that blood and claim grace is covering me so I don't need to worry about obeying the the Torah. And when I say Torah, I'm not talking about the legalisms which Paul and the writer of Hebrews refers to as dead works. That's not what Torah is not dead works, folks. Torah is the heart of God. The word Torah doesn't mean law. It comes from a root Hebrew root word, hore, which means to hit the mark. But it also was a word related to guidance or parenting. A parent who's helping his child hit the mark is a parent who is lovingly teaching that child, and the child is so bonded to the parent in love and trust and obedience that he will hit the mark because of his relationship. And this is, this is salvation. It is, it is over and over and over. We, we see the prophets saying, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your proper doctrine about the sacrificial system. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not for one minute dis- disowning or downplaying the preciousness of the blood of Jesus. But nothing dishonors the preciousness of that blood like teaching a concept of grace that means you can live any way you want to and grace covers it. Now, I know people in, who listen to Nightlight don't need that message. You know, you know that. But what I want you to understand is, in light of our present situation, the reason I want us to look at, at the book of Amos is in the light of the present situation, the parallels are tremendous. And, and, one of the things that, that Amos does is he points to the people of Israel 
And he says, I've come up from Judah with a word from God for you. And they don't want to hear it because he's from Judah. So he starts talking to them about the surrounding nations and the judgments that are coming first on the pagan nations, then on the, the cousin nations like Edom, then on the sister nation of Judah. And they're all ears for that. They want to hear all about the end-time prophecy message. And they want to know about the, the wrath that's coming on the nations. And one of the things we all need to keep in mind as we study all this is God is the God of all the nations. He is the God of Russia. He is the God of North Korea. He is the God of Cuba. He is the God of China. God's not waiting for permission to do anything. He is God and does whatever he wills in all the nations of the earth. And God is going to bring just judgment on these nations. And uh, Amos is pointing that out. And the people are saying, yeah, we like that. So then he says, well, for three sins and then for four, this is going to happen. That's a euphemism in Hebrew, by the way, for uh, three would have gotten you in big trouble, but you've gone beyond the three, and now you're into four. So the wrath is unavoidable. And he says that about all these nations, for three sins and then for four, this is coming. But then when he gets them right where he wants them, he, he, he says, now, Judah is under the same judgment. Yeah, yeah, we like that. But Israel, you have more to answer for than any other of the previous nations I've listed, to whom much is given, much is required. Special privilege doesn't mean special uh, um, exemption from judgment. It actually means greater judgment because the nations are being judged for their breach of conscience. They have done that which being human should have told them not to do. Just being human should have told them not to do terrible things like they've done to other people. But you have far more to answer for than just that. You have not just breached being human, you have breached revelation. I didn't just give you a conscience that you were to obey. I gave you explicit revelation and secret information in relationship to being united with me in covenant. You know my inner heart. I've revealed my inner heart to you. And so your responsibility is far greater. Your guilt is far greater. If you don't see the parallel with that to our present situation in America, then I don't know how to get it across. I know you do see it. Forgive me when I start talking to you like you don't know these things. I know most everybody who listens tonight like knows these things. But I'm driving towards a point related to the subject of intercessory prayer for the nation. If you can just hang on with me and forgive me when I start preaching to the choir, uh, you'll, you'll get this. But as he continues to speak to the people, he says, the lion is roaring. Now, they all understood that language. They understood that when, when the shepherd hears the roar of the lion, the lion doesn't roar because he's attacking. He, he roars to terrify that which he is about to attack. And the, the, the roar is to just knock them off their feet. And God is saying, I have given you chastising corrections and you have ignored them and ignored them and ignored them. Now the lion is roaring 
and the the implication is God's about to pounce. Now later on, God says in chapter eight, um, He lists all the things that He's done to bring them to repentance, and He says you you you've responded to none of them. So in chapter five, He says, uh, prepare to meet your God. What does that mean? Well, it means now that you've gone through all this shaking that you've gone through and it's done nothing to awaken you. You've had your 9-11s and they haven't moved you at all. Uh, Now we're coming to the place where I myself will come to you and my coming will be either unto blessing and restoration or unto devastation and judgment and wrath. And it will depend on how you are responding to me as to how I will respond to you. The idea is that God's coming will be light to those who long for light, and it will be utter uh, terror to those who who hate him and resist him. Uh, this is not talking about the second coming. This is talking about God dealing with a nation uh, as uh, he deals with all nations. When Israel, of course, as you know, finally comes to the end of its existence and uh, Assyria comes and, and destroys them, they have had all this time to prepare, all these warnings to prepare them, all these revelations through the prophets, through Isaiah, through Hosea, through Micah, through uh, Amos. And there has been a strange kind of stupidity that uh, has met the prophets every time. For instance, in chapter 6, God is speaking to the the leaders, the men of, of leadership of the nation. He says, you have enemies all around you. They are even in your land. That's spoken in chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 6, verse 14, God says, I'm the one who stirred up these enemies. I'm the one who pulled back your protective boundaries and made it possible for the enemies to begin to infiltrate. Uh, In chapter 4, he says, your affluence has been used for evil instead of for good. You've taken the blessings that I poured out for you and you've used them for immense evil. You know, I hear people say, and I understand it, America has been the most giving nation on the face of the earth. We're always first uh, to respond to some tragedy in the world. And that's very true. And, and God, God honors that. But if you think for one minute that's somehow going to ameliorate or, or diminish or balance or make up for the fact that we are also the number one exporter of perversion in the world, the number one uh, exporter of the murder of children in the world, the number one exporter of, um, of humanistic arrogance in the world. We have become the fountainhead of all that is opposite to the kingdom of God. You think that's just going to somehow be balanced because we give money to tr- people in trouble? Of course you don't. Religion is a sham, and God says it's such a sham. God says in chapter 5 of of Amos, I hate, 
I abhor your sacrifices and your songs and your worship services. He doesn't just say he hates it. He says, I hate, I abhor these things because it's better. It would Look, which is worse, for a man to betray his wife or a, for a man to betray his wife while he's claiming to honor uh, his marriage vows? Uh, I mean, to call her from the hotel. Is, how would you like it if your spouse called you from the hotel where you had your honeymoon and said, I'm here celebrating our honeymoon, uh, our anniversary with a prostitute that I picked up on the side of the road. I just wanted to let you know I'm, I'm doing it to honor you. That's exactly what God's heart feels as they celebrate the sacrifice of blood of bulls and goats in order to cover their sins legally while they spit in God's face, disregard his Torah, disregard his revelation of truth, and live in utter rebellion and disobedience while claiming to be his people. Another thing I want to mention that's hard for us to hear, but in chapter 4 of verse 10, one of the things that they came under judgment about was their military boasting. I don't know if you realize it or not, folks, but God is not impressed by military boasting. God's not impressed. When we count our army and we number our bullets and we beat our chest and we wave our flag and we talk about the glory and grandeur of our great capacities, then we maybe even flip God a, a, a tip of a hat now and then and uh, make reference to the divine providence that made it possible. We don't even do that anymore. The more we brag about our military prowess, the more we are coming under the judgment of God, and the more you will see our prowess turn on its head, and we will begin to see more and more devastating defeats and devastating uh, disintegrations, and you will begin to see the military might of the United States disintegrating, manifesting in defeats where once we were uh, unstoppable. And if you if you think for one minute, and here again, I know you don't think it, but if people think for one minute that our in, our our technological prowess is somehow uh, ensuring our constant victory, you're going to begin to see that toppled. You're going to begin to see other nations manifesting greater degrees of technological capacity because God is not going to continue to bless and protect a nation who thinks its own prowess is keeping itself safe while it dishonors God every way it can. And so when God says, prepare to meet your God, then he basically says in chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, you will you choose what that meeting is going to be like. When I come to you as your God, it's either going to be in wrath or in restoration. It'll depend on your heart. Then, and this is my main point for wanting to spend time in, in Amos here. After Amos has spoken and spoken and spoken to the people, so much so that it reaches the ears of the king. And the king uh, uh, calls Amos to him. Before Amos goes to meet the king, he has two visions, actually three visions. In those visions in chapter 7, beginning at verse 1 and on through verse 6, 
Um, Amos is shown a vision of an army of locusts so destructive and so overpowering that they annihilate the food supply and the people, of course, can't survive. Amos goes into intercessory prayer, stands before the Lord and says, Father, please do not let this happen. And God's response is, I will not let it happen. Then the next vision is of a holy fire, a fire that annihilates, a nuclear blast of holy wrath that annihilates the entire uh, nation. And again, Amos stands in the gap and, and cries out, God, please don't let this happen. And God again responds, I will not allow it to happen. Now, what is that about? Well, we've talked about it before, but I want to stress it here again. The purpose of the intercessor, you know, Samuel said to Israel when they demanded a king, instead of letting God be their king, they wanted a king like the pagan nations. Samuel was grieved by, uh, by it, but he says to the people of Israel, God forbid now that I should sin against you by ceasing to pray for you. What did he mean by that? Well, the people have chosen a path that will lead them to bondage and disintegration. Samuel knows that as prophet, he stands between God and the people. On God's behalf, he speaks to the people. On the people's behalf, he cries out to God. God is the one who has Samuel standing in both places. God is not having Samuel speak to the people for himself, and then the people have Samuel speaking to God for themselves. No, no, no. God has Samuel speaking to the people on God's behalf, and God is the same one who has Samuel speaking to the people uh, or speaking to God on the people's behalf. You see what I'm saying? God is the energizer behind both positions. Why? Because God wants his word known to the people, obviously, so he has Samuel speak to the people. All prophets speak to the people. But God also knows that unless there is an intercessor, a representative of the human race, who puts himself in alignment with God by covenant and stands in the gap so that God's purposes can be called forth on the earth, even among people who are ignorant or rebellious, that God's just judgment would eventually destroy the people because of their rebellion. God didn't want to destroy the people. God wants to give them grace and mercy and life. And so God raises up prophets and intercessors who stand in the gap and make up the hedge. Again, I'm, I'm referring to Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30. God sought for a man among them who would stand in the gap and make up the hedge so that he would not have to destroy the land. What does that tell you? God does not want to destroy the land. God wants to bring forth his kingdom purposes. The people are not in obedience or are ignorant or are deceived. And God doesn't want their deception or ignorance or rebellion to bring just wrath on them. So God raises up intercessors who call forth for God's purposes to be brought forth in the earth. And, and, and so that's what Amos is doing. Amos is standing in the gap and saying, Father, I know this wrath of fire that I see is just. It would be righteous for it to come. But I'm, I'm pleading your heart back to you. 
I'm I'm praying your prayer, your your desire. I'm praying your desire back up to you. And God, for some reason we don't fully understand, God says, because you've done that, now I am, for lack of a better way of saying it, I'm legally capable now of holding back the just judgment that would have come. You've given me the legal reason. Uh, I'm, I'm using weak language here, but I'm doing the best I can with the time we've got. I hope you're getting the picture. God is not bound by anything except his own righteous heart. But somehow in his own righteous loving heart, he has established it so that a representative of Adam's race must give voice to God's purposes in the earth before God can bring forth those purposes. And so God raises intercessors and prophets up for that purpose. Now, that knowledge should transform your prayer life. That very knowledge, what I just said, should cause you to be able to stand in the gap and make up the hedge and cry out to God. You're not informing God, and you're not trying to talk God into something he doesn't want to do. So therefore, what are you doing? You're making yourself available for God's own spirit to speak through your mouth up to God and bring earth and heaven together so that heaven can come to earth so that God's heavenly purpose can be brought. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amos has been doing that. But here's what I want you to see in the the next vision. There's the vision of the locust, then there's the vision of the uh, fire. But then look at this third vision. It's called the vision of the plumb line. What's a plumb line? Well, among other things, it's a builder's tool that is used to make sure the building is going up properly, that it is built so that it can last. And in this third vision of the plumb line, God is saying, I'm measuring Israel by my plumb line, and there is no prayer offered for this. It's right for Amos to say, please don't let the locusts come. God says, I won't. Please don't let the fire come. God says, I won't. But you can't say, please don't measure the plumb line. Because that would be saying, God, please don't measure reality according to your righteous will. God's not going to receive that kind of intercession. There's no intercession for that. And so Amos realizes that he's come to the point where the country is right to the end of its uh, potential for, for salvaging. And about that time is when the news comes that the king has been informed by the high priest that uh, Amos has been speaking treacherously. Now, here's where politics and religion, you cannot separate politics and religion. It's impossible. Politics has to do with policy, which has to do with behavior. Religion has to do with behavior in response to God. Both issues relating to behavior come together under one uh, uh, subject. The law says you can't kill people. God has said you can't kill people. The law says you can't steal people's property. Well, God said it first. You can't come up with some kind of amoral law. Law is rooted in God's law. And so the king says to Amos, why don't you go back down there to uh, the south where you're from and uh, make you a good living being a paid prophet? 
And Amos says, I got news for you. I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. I was a keeper of sycamore trees. But the Lord spoke. I cannot help but prophesy. The lion has roared. And now the time of his pouncing is upon you. If evil happens in the city, is it not clear that God has sent it? He's telling the king. And so because of the king's arrogant rebellion, he says to him, Now you will be taken into captivity, your family will die in the streets, and all is lost. You've made your choice. Then he sees a vision of a bowl of, uh, the King James Version says a, a bowl of ripe fruit. But the idea is that it's almost rotten. Uh, it's ripe, all right. It's, it's, it's ready to be cast aside. Uh, and the Lord is saying in that vision, they are, they're beyond ripe. They're moving into rottenness. One of the most painful things then that happens, and this here again relates directly to us. I mean, we are people who have enemies within our gates. God has stirred our enemies up to awaken our enemies to stand against us as chastisement. They are inside our borders. We know they are. And yet, not only are they inside our borders, but they've been given positions in our government, by our government. And the American people, to, in some places, are awake to that. But for the most part, there's, there's an, 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 insur- an, an, an insufferable kind of moral and spiritual blindness that would have uh, Islam build a mosque on the very site of where Islam murdered 3,000 of our people. That's, that's utterly, utterly, mindlessly stupid. But stupidity, I say this over and over. I'm not trying to be facetious. I'm not trying to be funny. Stupidity is a judgment of God on a people that have rejected revealed truth. So don't rant and rave, Clay. When you see the culture doing things that are stupid beyond imagination, stupid beyond the ability to describe the stupidity, there's no sense in ranting and raving. It's part of the just judgment of God on a nation that has rejected revealed truth. Now, the point is in all of this, is there hope still in the face of this impending disaster? Still there's hope. God says to them in chapter 8, if you'll love what I love and hate what I hate, if you will choose, this is a play in Hebrew, it's very interesting, if you will choose to, if you will choose to love what I love, then you will begin to love what I love. I'm paraphrasing, but he says, if you will choose to love without any emotion, choose to obey without any emotional motivation, if you will keep choosing to do what I've called you to do in the right spirit, in the right heart, if you keep doing that, I will, I will give you the heart to obey so that you will actually become those who love what I love and hate what I hate. This is true in so many areas of our lives. Uh, when, when you when you act lovingly, you're acting in obedience to love with no emotion. 
your emotions will begin to line up with your actions and you will find that your heart desire lines up with your obedient action. And yet if, if you wait for your emotions to satisfy you so that obedience becomes a, a preference of your own and pleasurable, you'll never get there. There's all kind of reasons for that we won't take time to talk about here. But choosing to obey without any emotion. Jesus said it like this in John chapter 7. Whoever, whoever does the truth will come to understand the teaching. Sometimes it's just a matter of obeying what God said to do without any other motivation except you love and trust God. And they had this this was their their only hope left, is to do what I, I just described. And uh, the king chooses instead to go the other direction, and the, the majority of the people follow in the same spirit of the king. God promises that he will protect those, that remnant. He will protect those that fear him and obey him. And even though they're caught up in the invasion that finally brings Israel to its demise, God promises in chapter 9 a, a merciful and protecting uh, uh, grace that will not only watch over the remnant of Israel in the midst of the Assyrian invasion, but also promises the ultimate end-time restoration of the nation of Israel uh, and uh, the day when Israel will be restored to its land where the uh, the reaper will overtake the sower, there'll be such prosperity, and Israel will never again be driven out of its land, which is an end-time thing. And that I will restore the uh, tabernacle of David that has been cast down so that real worship is restored. The day of real worship will be restored. Now, where are we in reference to these last issues? One of the sad things that... that uh, Amos says to them there at the close, he says, you're, you're, because of the choices you're making, there will be a famine that will come. Not a famine of food, a famine of the Word of God. There will be a cutting off of the grace of revelation. Your young people, your young men and your young women will fall in the streets starving for truth and there'll be no revelation for truth, and they'll end up worshiping the false gods of the pagans. Uh, in the morning, I have one of the best times of my week. I meet with a bunch of teenagers who have asked me. I didn't ask them. They've asked me to sit down with them and teach them the Word of God, and they don't want any anything but the Word of God. Now that gives me great, great hope that we're not yet in the position that I've been describing here that Israel got at, at this point. But one of the great uh, judgments that finally comes is there's no revelation. Your young people, will they will not hear the word. There'll be a famine of the revelation of the word of God. Well, we're not there. And God says, thankfully, through the prophet Joel, who preceded Amos a bit, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions and on my servants and my handmaids will I pour out of my spirit and it will come to pass in that day that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will, will be delivered. I believe that we are right now hearing the voice of God say to America, 
prepare to meet your God. And you will meet him either in judgment and wrath or in mercy and blessing. One of the things that was characteristic of the time of Amos, Amos talks about it. He says, everybody is looking forward to the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. You talk about, oh, the day of the Lord. Do you not know, Israel, that the day of the Lord for you that you think is going to be the overthrow of your enemies and the exaltation of the kingdom of Israel and uh, all of the promises of the prophets coming to pass. No, for you, the day of the Lord will be dark and trembling and terrifying because the God you claim you want to come is a God of righteousness. And God says, don't give me your sacrifices. Don't give me your offerings, but let righteousness pour down like rivers and let justice pour like a never-ending stream. And you don't want that righteousness and that justice. You fornicate and, and say that the blood covers it. You treat mistreat the poor and say the blood covers it. You take people to court over petty, stupid things like a shoe. And you say, uh, God understands. I don't know how many in America have that mindset. It's so easy to sit here and, and make blanket statements on either the negative or the positive side of this. I believe there is an awakening in America. I do believe it. I, I can only go by what I sense in my spirit and what I hear from different people around the country that I'm in touch with. I believe there's a great awakening of prayer. I believe many people... Many people are awakening to the call of God to stand in the gap. And by standing in the gap, God is able to manifest reality in ways that he's not been able to do before. So there is great hope. There is a possibility of a turn. But still, I, I don't know that I could ever believe that we're going to see a national turnaround. Maybe we will. I mean, Nineveh did. Right down to the fact that the, the from the king down to the animals, everything, uh, everybody repented. That may happen. In the outpouring of Joel chapter 2, of Joel chapter uh, 2 and 3, there might be some great move of the Holy Spirit that brings a, an utter awakening in America. I, I don't have faith for that, but I'm, I'm willing to pray until the Holy Spirit forms it in me. And, and maybe some of you do have faith for it. And I'd like to hear from you if you do. Because I need that encouragement. I see uh, uh, an arrogance unlike any arrogance in the history of the world manifested by uh, uh, the American culture in, in the government uh, shaking its fist in God's face. But it's a government that the American people chose. It's a government the American people like. It's a government the American people may re-elect. We'll see. If we do, then we know where we've we know what we've chosen. Now, I want to say in closing, I want you to understand some things about the wrath of God and the love of God. And this is going to be something you need to value and hold on to, no matter what book of scripture we're studying, whether it's the the major and minor prophets or, or apocalyptic literature or book of Revelation, whatever it is, you need to understand something about the wrath of God in relation to the love of God. God's wrath is not in opposition to his love. God's not schizophrenic. Whereas we humans, when we're angry, 
we can't comprehend loving someone while we're wanting to punch them in the face. We don't want to kiss their face while we want to slap their face. Uh, You may have felt that way about one of your kids. I'd like to kiss him and punch him at the same time. And if you do, if you, I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious, but if you have felt that, you get a little bit of what God's heart is like. God wants reconciliation even while he is wrathfully angry. So let me tell you some things about the wrath of God in closing. The wrath of God is not a primary, but it is a secondary manifestation of God's heart. God doesn't have an eternal wrath in him that needs to be expressed. God doesn't need anything. Of course, we know anyway. But God's love, if God has a need, it's a need he chose sovereignly to to create in himself. If God needs us, it's because he knows we need to be needed, C.S. Lewis said. And so God's love has chosen to make itself expressed in its in all forms of creation, in the formation of the family, in the creation of the human race, and in the human race's redemption. All of that has to do with love. But the doctrine that says, now, God also has an eternal wrath in him that needs to express itself. And so uh, God has purposefully created evil so that he has a place to ex- exemplify that wrath. I believe that doctrine is blasphemous. God's wrath is not a primary manifestation of his inner being. It is a secondary one, and it is a necessary one because you can't have love without wrath. You parents listening to me, can you imagine your love for your children uh, not exhibiting wrath if someone attacks your children? At that point, your wrath and your love are the same thing, and the absence of wrath would prove the absence of love. So, The patience of God means God is controlling his just anger. The patience of God means God is controlling his just anger. He's patient because something is wrong. He's waiting because he's giving room for us to make the right choice. In that waiting, he is controlling his wrath God doesn't lose it and just all of a sudden say, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to punch you in the face and go red-faced and veins sticking out in his throat. Uh, We do that. God doesn't do that. God's wrath is a wise response to unrepentant evil. The next point I want you to contemplate is the wrath of God, once it does manifest, means God is saying by that wrath, I am no longer willing to give you space to choose. Your time of choice is run out. We're not there yet, but we're moving there. The next point, the Lord is long-suffering, compassionate, loving, and faithful. But he is also demanding, insistent, terrible, and dangerous. Now this last one I want you to think of maybe the most. The purpose of God's wrath is to bring an end to the need for wrath. Think about that. We're out of time. Thanks for listening. God bless you all. We'll talk Lord willing next time.